3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We, we acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded and the treaty was never signed. Good morning, everyone. You are listening to Wednesday Breakfast here on 3CR Community Radio. Today is the 5th of December. Mm-hmm. It is a Wednesday. I and am the Will. balloons are out. Hi, I'm Eidwin. <laughs> Hello, Eidwin. Uh, no, I'm doing it and I'm just saying the balloons are out. The balloons are out. Good morning. It's Dean here. And I think uh, explanation for listeners, uh, the balloons are out because we had our disability day on Monday the 3rd, which you can find all over our website, um, all the coverage of that wonderful day, and it was it was something pretty special. We it now have um, absolutely twelve hours yeah. special broadcast for um, International Day of People with a Disability, and we, we now have some amazing photos and quotes from the days um, decking out our cool corridors here at Three CR. So there you go. There are streamers. Proper still celebration. Up. I don't want to take the streamers down. Oh, no, no, no it feels good in here this morning. Mm. Tis the season. Tis yes. the season. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's it's been a We've entered officially into December. Yes, and it's always uh, quite a, a, a great start for um, organisations. I think World AIDS Day was on Saturday. That's right. And then it was had, the 1st yeah. of December yeah. on Saturday. And we've got some um, some recordings later from uh, Indigenous Rights Radio um, to commemorate Indigenous uh, sorry the Indigenous uh, perspective. Uh, not to commemorate, to to broadcast the Indigenous right. yeah. for World and AIDS to, Day. To present. Get yes. those voices yes. out. Yeah. And get yeah. Voices um, out. And gosh, what else do we have? Well, on later the show? in the show, after 8. We'll yeah, so um, 8 o'clock we're going to have a pretty busy show. 8.15, finishing off the show, we're going to be talking to Professor Helen Berry about the recent uh, publication of the Lancet Journal's uh, Global Countdown Tracker of Climate Change and Health, or and Health Impacts by Climate Change. Right, okay. uh, so and that sounds like a massive project. That's a massive project, yeah. So mm. it's, it's going to be fantastic to get Helen in. And uh, Tim Jones will do his um, mm-hmm. monthly segment, and he'll be looking at what's been happening in Parliament this week around um, recognition of... Um, um, gay, lesbian, um, bisexual, transgender, uh, young people in schools. I like how we're working backwards and at 7.35 we'll have <laughs> Amanda Thomas. Um, it's, a, it's a pre-record of Amanda Thomas. Yeah, she's a, a, um, a human geographer from New Zealand and uh, her um, project they investigated media representations of environmental activists in mm. New Zealand. And, and, envi- and, and the non-environmental um, impact that we're meant to not be having. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then at 7.20, Monica Kelly will join us in the studio and she had a presentation last week at Melbourne Free University and it was the last presentation It was for the, the last uh, one. Yeah. Yeah, and she, she's been a human rights observer in Palestine 
um, from April to June this year. Mm-hmm. So she'll talk about, and she did talk about last Thursday, I went along, she'll talk about you know, what she observed and what that process mm. was like. So I love the connotations of um, observer, just kind of you know, sitting in the corner just taking notes, kind of watching from afar. Well, and, and actually the program <laughs> itself is called accompaniment. Ah, okay. So basically you accompany people. Yep. Uh, as they go about their business, their daily mm-hmm. business, and um, and uh, know what I mean. A is support first yeah. and foremost, but secondly, if you do see human rights abuses, then you record. That does sound report. quite immersive. Uh, yeah. it, yes, well, I mean, I can't wait to hear. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that sounds fantastic. Yeah. So we've got a fantastic show coming up. Um, I just want to ask, I guess, you guys, what are, you, what, are you, what are your plans for the holiday season coming up? Because I know we're Ooh. reaching the beautiful summer break. Yeah. <laughs> uh, hot weather, bushfires, yeah. you know, oh. just, just the usual stuff that's going to ha- keep you're happening. You're not planning bushfires. No, no, I'm just saying no. we'll, there'll Sorry. be a lot of them around. <laughs> all right, all right, yeah. Just because we'll be going into summer programming in a few weeks. I know I'm mm. heading off in a few weeks too. And yeah, so it's going to be interesting because you're going to have different presenters here at different times. That's right. We're actually, as a team though, only mm-hmm. taking two weeks off. Yeah. That's the very last week of the year and then the first, very first week of first, January. The very last Wednesday of the year and then the first Wednesday of January. But we'll still have great broadcasting. If you folks missed out on the um, Pathway to Totalitarianism pa- panel, which was, yep. which I think was really great. Um, you'll get a chance to listen to it again. Um, we're going to be rebroadcasting that. I think the first week of the year. I'm not. I'm not 100. First week of the year, mm-hmm. I reckon. We'll give you a bit more notice as, um, as the time draws nearer, and then we've got something else um, planned for well, the, the and some best well. of. So I yeah. think yeah. Yeah. some of the the pieces that we were most excited about mm. over the year will be yeah. we'll be replaying. So no, we're not shutting down. It's not going to be cricket. Well, <laughs> <laughs> no, that that period from yeah. um, sort of just before Christmas till the end of January is actually quite a good period to listen to because mm. most broadcasters have their favourites for the year. Yeah. So, you know, you might have listened to a story in May and, and all of a sudden you're somewhere yeah. the, on the beach listening to 3CR <laughs> on th- online and um, the story comes up again. So just hey. listen out. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the time right now is 7.06 and 47 seconds, but I'm not going to count the seconds because <laughs> there's always too much time. But, but we just know. Yeah, you just know that the seconds, seconds are there. Um, they'll always be there. We're heading into <laughs> alternative news. Uh, stay tuned. facing a man-made disaster of global scale, our greatest threat in thousands of years, climate change. If we don't take action, the collapse of our civilizations and the extinction of much of the natural world is on the horizon. The United Nations provides a unique platform that can unite the whole world. And as the Paris Agreement proved, 
together we can make real change happen. The world's people have spoken. Their message is clear. Time is running out. They want you, the decision makers, to act now. Leaders of the world, you must lead. The continuation of our civilizations and the natural world upon which we depend is in your hands. Thank you. And, of course, that's uh, Sir David Attenborough, who we've, um, whose speech we've heard quite a lot of over the last uh, day or so. And uh, he's um, t- uh, stressing the urgency mm. of acting on climate change. And, of course, uh, right now the COP24 meeting is happening in Katowice in Poland, and that's the meeting where we look at, um, or the world uh, nations look at, the actual actions that they're taking mm. to uh, progress climate change. So I'm um, I, I, listening to David Attenborough. I think the, the thing that moved me most was world leaders, you must lead. Mm. And, I mean, looking at what's happening in Australia right now, um, you know, we aren't seeing that leadership that we need. We're not seeing, yeah, lead, we're seeing middle of the road. <laughs> Yeah. So, so anyway, I just think uh, it's a two-week conference that's on. Mm. So there will be lots more coming out of that over the next few weeks. I think the Australian negotiators' representatives that are there are going to be in a, a, quite an awkward position, given um, uh, you know the fact that we haven't done a lot. We're not progressing well, despite uh, the prime minister's claims in mm. reducing our emissions. So we're not meeting you know, our goals on that level. No. But also, uh, we're not, it seems like uh, we won't be funding also uh, you know, third nations. Um, mm. uh, there's a fund for third nations or developing nations and the countries that aren't so well off to help them with climate change uh, initiatives and work. And I, I have a feeling that uh, Australia is not funding that. So anyway, um, but it, uh, you know, it, it's something to watch. It's also important to look at where Australia is sitting within that. It is, and I think it's also remember, it's important to remember, I mean, the global politics always points out, you know, which, which countries are signing, which countries are ratifying, which countries are actually following through on it. That's right, these, these, yeah. these global governments does, do lack any actual teeth or any actual enforcement mechanisms. So it's... it's great when we hear a lot of countries signing on to the preliminary mm. agreement but not actually ratifying it or providing any solid And that's particularly to too, true on the human rights legislation you mm. in, uh, because right. Australia has uh, often ratified but not followed through mm. Yeah And I guess for me it resonates um, listening to David Attenborough because obviously I grew up listening to him but I wonder whether you know, he reaches the younger audience. That, that that speech obviously is very powerful and his voice is very powerful. You know, but watching all of his documentaries on animals, you know, you could sit through an hour and not watch a kill. But I wonder if the younger people can sort of get, relate to David Attenborough's message. Yeah, yeah, I mean, know? I don't know. But, you know, what's quite interesting, I think, is that we had the, the student strike on Friday mm. or Thursday or Friday. I not remember which day that was. It was no, Friday. it was this week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This yeah. week. Yeah, I mean, no, it was just the past week. I was wondering if it was Thursday or Friday, but that's probably irrelevant. The fact that it was that strike was huge. So young people made it very clear, students made it very clear that this is a concern for them. And I was thinking, my God, did they know that this uh, other conference, UN conference, was happening? Oh, the timing was impeccable. Yeah. <laughs> you know that, yeah. And one thing I wanted to touch on with news, I know we've just started a WhatsApp group mm. within our um, uh, broadcasters. There is uh, uh, the encryption bill 
is introducing a raft of new powers. So there was a great article called No More WhatsApp, How the Proposed Encrypted Messages Access Laws Will Affect You. And the Australian government wants to pass a world-first laws that would force technology companies to help police access encrypted messages. So I wonder what that impact will be on, um, you know, that, uh, on people who do use uh, encrypted messages. So the big deal, I guess, is that the, the government is seeking to get around a key selling point of some of the biggest companies in the world. Um, and not only that, we know that encryption is the foundation of many of the things we take for granted on the internet, including secure stock market trading, health information storage, online voting, and also banking. So where, you know, well, what messages can the government access? Um, yeah, so that's yeah. quite an interesting. It's worth mentioning. This is the article from the from the ABC. Yeah. Um, that uh, so so it mentions that this uh, will impact a lot of things that people rely on. It can break encryption, like yeah, you know, it'll ruin banking, not just for you know sort of large corporations, but our you know entire approach to the internet having safe spaces and unsafe spaces, secure spaces and unsecure data. Um, it's good, it could be you know taken real advantage of by you know by the state, obviously, but also by by actors who realize that these these mechanisms are out there, these sort of backdoors into various encryption, mm. encrypted spaces. So I don't know. And obviously governments around the world have people working mm. on breaking encryptions. Yeah, the WannaCry, <laughs> do we remember the WannaCry, was it, it was a virus or it was an attack mm. on, um, on, on, I think it was banking across... Oh, um, that's right, yeah, US, holding yeah. them for ransom. And, yeah, 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 holding yeah. them for ransom, holding their computer systems for ransom so they couldn't actually access their the databases yeah. or anything unless they paid a ransom. That's that why was, I still carry $50 um, cash in my wallet, just <laughs> in case. Yeah, well, the, the point is that that was, um, that was the result of um, sort of bad actors taking advantage of um, sort of a break encryption well. that was created yeah. by the NSA yeah. in, the, in the United States, the, the National Security, Security Agency. Agency. Yeah, yeah so yeah. I, I don't know. It's just I think we need to really press on this story in the future. And, um, and Labor's mm. actually um, seems to be supporting the bill, mm. you know, which is quite strange. Yeah. The other thing is you'll never know where the messages well, are being strange. read. They, they want, you know, just as much as the Liberal Party, they want more eyes on their citizens and they want more power over their citizens. Well, I guess that that's what I believe is strange because mm. what benefit does reading mm. everyone's encrypted messages have for the government? You know, they obviously talk about stopping terror and all of those things. But apart from that, yeah. what are normal people doing? Does it, why does the government care if I'm sending WhatsApp messages to my ex-girlfriend? I refer <laughs> everyone back to the Path to Totalitarianism um, uh, special that we yeah. played last year. Yeah. Uh, not last year, <laughs> last, this year. last month, yeah. wasn't it? No, yeah, it was end of August. End of Sorry, August. end of September. End of September, okay. Yeah. Um, the, the Path to Totalitarianism uh, panel that is still available on the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au. I think it might even be somewhere down on the front page if you scroll down. Um, and we'll also be rebroadcasting that over summer. Can I quickly mention um, our own Lauren Bull, from from Tuesday Breakfast um, published an article in the New T- New Matilda. I'm not going to read out the whole thing, Lauren, if you're listening. Um, uh, but its title is Julie and Julia: Feminists When Hell Freezes Over, and it just sort of comments on the both the mainstream media, but also quite a bit of like social media that I've been seeing on fa- on Facebook and Twitter. People really lauding um, Julia Banks, <coughs> sorry, Julie Bishop and Julia Banks, um, both for being sort of noted feminists. In, in very heavy scare quotes right there, um, where 
I, I think Lauren really f- sums it up really well in the sentence. They they may think they're empowering women, but if they are, it's a very specific type of woman because throughout the article, a lot of um, examples are given of um, cases in which the institution that um, that Julia Banks was and Julie Bishop is part of the Liberal Party and the Australian government have you know enacted laws to really um, oppress women of all sort of identities, across identities, um, Indigenous women, especially under the cashless cart welfare. Yes, yeah, that's, that, that's a shock for that one. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yep. Absolutely. Um, so I just think it's um, worth sort of, if, if you weren't already sort of reading Twitter and thinking, oh, really? Is, is Julie Bishop really our feminist superhero? Um, it, it might be sort of worth reading. Um, really yeah, it sounds like a great, great article that Lauren wrote. Is great amazing. opinion writers like Lauren Bull. So, um, yeah. And, well done, and there's just one other <laughs> thing on, I'd, I'd like to, I'd, yeah, good on you, Lauren. <laughs> one other thing I'd like to slip in, and right. uh, um, it's 80 years tomorrow from William Cooper's protest mm. against Kristallnacht. Okay. And um, the Jewish Demo- Australian Jewish Democratic Society is honouring uh, his memory and um, continuing his legacy and standing up against injustice. And uh, they've organised a walk mm. from uh, his home in Footscray to Edinburgh Gardens. And uh, they're going to, and it's uh, 80 years. So uh, William Cooper, some of you will know, is a Yorta Yorta man. He led a march to Melbourne's German consulate to protest Kristallnacht. One of the few people. Yeah, mm. and, and as I said, at a time when Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples were themselves denied citizenship and other basic human rights, he chose to stand up for Jewish people in Germany and the future of Jewish people. I've always found this a very moving story. Oh, it's beautiful. Isn't yeah. It? yeah, amazing, yeah. amazing thing And so did. do we have details of when So that? if you go onto the website of mm. the uh, Australian Jewish Democratic Society, you can get the information about the walk because mm. they will also, I think there will be a ceremony as well at Edinburgh Gardens, so if you can do the whole walk, you could um, go to Edinburgh Gardens. So, but I, I think just check out their website for the details. So that's the Australian Jewish Democratic, Democratic Society. Society. Okay. Yeah, just search them up on the internet. That's Google, right. Facebook, and um, uh, it, it it says a progressive voice mm-hmm. among Jews, a Jewish voice among progressives. All right. Well, that's been alternative news. Uh, we might give you a quick flick through the papers later on in the show, but uh, otherwise, hold on for a sec. We'll be right back with a really great interview. See you soon, folks. And that is Jen Claw's sensory memory, which I got to hear at Cleanscliff. <laughs> You'll be hearing music for weeks from that. <laughs> Wonderful. Nice. Well, we'll look forward to that. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, after seven decades of turmoil and military occupation in the so-called Holy Land, both Palestinians and Israelis are feeling victimized. And um, but what's really going on on the ground? And what do everyday impacts of the occupation look like from a human rights perspective? So I just wanted to, to quote that. It's actually a quote from our, our guest who's here now in the studio, Monica Kylie. And it's a quote from the flyer that got me along to the Melbourne Free University special session last Thursday night to hear um, about what's happening. So welcome, Monica. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and uh, I spoke to Monica yesterday, and she's recovering from laryngitis, so you might hear. So special thanks uh, for coming in, and um, we're going to give her a little break partway through to rest her voice by playing a bit of music. But uh, for now, we're going to start just by asking you, Monica, to tell us a bit more. Well, first, I should say that you're a student in uh, international relations at La Trobe. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and uh, so this year, earlier this year, 
you went as a human rights observer for an organization called Act for Peace in Palestine and Israel. And um, it's a huge commitment. Why did you go? Why did you get involved? Why did I go? Good question. Um, Look, I've always been really interested in uh, studying the dynamics of peace and conflict. And I'm... um, yeah, always been curious about Palestine and Israel in particular. Um, I have a Jewish grandfather, so uh, yeah, I guess my focus fell there. But uh, honestly, it was a really random ad that I was responding to, and it came very much out of the blue. <laughs> well, I think that's kind of wonderful, <laughs> actually. But then, then once you made your decision, and it came out of the blue, what did you find you were into? I mean, what happened next? happened next? I uh, went through a selection process. I went and did um, some training in a place in Seymour at Common Ground there and, yeah, spent five days with a bunch of other potential deployees and we uh, essentially, yeah, were put under a whole bunch of different tests. We, on the mm. final day, we had a role play. Where what tests? Um, Oh, just a discernment process where uh, we went through training and lots of um, yeah assessments based on whether we would you know respond well under certain pressures yeah and then on the final day we did this role play where uh, the whole venue and the surrounds were set up as um, you know there was like a you know landmines in the in the field and there were um, we weren't allowed to talk to certain people because they were dressed as soldiers and we were, um, yeah, it was just a, the whole scenario was built up for us and we were put under, sent through uh, fake military checkpoints and how did we respond, that kind of stuff. And, and it is a big thing to to be in a situation which is so different from what we have in Australia where you are, you do see soldiers on the streets. It's part of your regular encounter and even little posts with sandbags set up. And I mean, I haven't been to Israel, but I can imagine it's just a very different setting. So learning how to survive and, and potentially feel more comfortable even or, you know, okay being there. Yeah, most definitely. And I should just clarify that... Um, when we were in Israel and Palestine, we actually did do a lot of, um, well, some talking to soldiers and um, members of the Israeli Defence Force. Um, yeah. yeah, but it is a very, very different t- context. Yeah. And Israel versus the Palestinian territories is a very, very different context. So, um, yeah. Yeah. And so I know that Act for Peace um, has a range of projects and uh, this one uh, of being a human rights observer is just one and also works in many countries. So did you have a choice of where you went? Definitely. I was, yeah, when I applied, um, this program is quite specific to Palestine. They do have other um, yeah, projects around the world, but this one is sort of built and locally led and um, very much context specific here. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious about, so you get there, your first day on the job, shall we say, what happened? What happened? Um, The first thing I should say is we uh, have training in country as well, and then we go and we shadow people who have been doing the job before us. Um, And so we were in sort of safe hands, I guess. But I think the very first thing that I did was I was part of a school run, so essentially uh, what they call walking children to school, but it's very different to what you would have here in Australia. Uh, it was I was based in Annex East Jerusalem and there are soldiers that are stationed 
all throughout the uh, old city. And essentially our job was to go and to just be seen by the military uh, at all of these different stations. And the children would come through and walk past us. And can um, I just, this, were these Palestinian children? Palestinian children, yeah. Yeah, so they uh, have, you know, there's a big issue with access to education for Palestinian ch- children in general, and particularly in the old city, because they are walking through, um, the old city is very contested because it's such a holy site to all of the different Abrahamic religions. Um, there's a lot of tension, and there are a lot of settlers, illegal settlers who are moving in, and essentially uh, forcing Palestinian families out and moving in themselves. And what happens when that happens is that there's um, private security that are then uh, paid for by the Israeli government and there are also um, border police that come in and help to protect those settlers who are living in... um, Within uh, Palestinian communities. Within Palestinian communities. Right in the centre, the sometimes one house surrounded by Palestinian houses. Is that what it looks like? Yeah, exactly. And um, what that means for children is that sometimes their route to school is completely shut off. Sometimes um, there's a... uh, If there's an event where there's been an incident and some, you know, perhaps there has been a situation where a Palestinian has... um, been involved in a crime or perhaps not, but there's collective punishment that happens and the repercussions are felt by um, by communities and often by children who can't get to school. Uh, the other thing that happens is there are a lot of child arrests. And so if, for example, children are throwing stones, um, and that can be for any number of reasons, and... And even, you know, I've heard from a lot of children who actually didn't throw the stones, but they were in the vicinity of somebody who has thrown stones. So they can be arrested and they uh, don't get to access their education. So how did, it, how did it feel uh, that first day walking the children to school? It's confronting. Um, it's... I, I think probably the thing that struck me the most is the militarisation uh, you see these weapons. You see uh, young soldiers who are conscripted. They don't, a lot of the time, well, most of the time, they don't have a choice. And they are there for either two or three years. And they're, you know, teenagers, 18-year-olds, holding M16s um, in full military equipment and harassing children. And on one of those early days, we, we saw one, a child who had been picked out of um, racially profiled essentially and for no other reason that I could see had been pulled over to the side into the, one of these little military stations and was being frisked um, and so you know the impact of this kind of constant harassment and intimidation and often it, it is violent um, and that violence isn't necessarily seen by the tourists that go through the old city. Or the, the yeah, I mean, yes, this is very interesting because I, you know, there's a very, there are many Israels or Israel Palestines in a sense. Hmm. I expect, and people go in different in different capacities. But were you identified in some way uh, for your role? Like, would the soldiers, for example, when they see you walking with the children, <coughs> would they know, um, you know, who yeah. you were and why you were there? Yeah, so we were always wearing um, vests that 
announced the organisation that we were with and the organisation is known on the ground to be um, there as a, um, a peaceful presence, to, as a protective presence and they know that we're unarmed civilians who are, who are there um, in favour of human rights and whether that be Palestinian rights or Israeli rights. But unfortunately, because of the context, uh, we are mostly dealing with Palestinians. Um, yeah, and um, I guess wearing that outfit, uh, how did how did people respond to you? In, in varied ways, the Palestinians themselves were generally really, really welcoming. I was overwhelmed by how um, pleased they were. And that was the legacy of the people who have uh, come before us as well. But the military were, um, I would say, hostile. They are very reluctant. Um, or very, they've been told that we are there to antagonise and we're internationals interfering essentially. So they uh, would you know, target us for mild harassment, but nothing compared yeah. to uh, to what you saw uh, for the Palestinian people you were travelling with. Um, so you've already described like that first day and, and some of the feelings, some of the impressions. I think also you know you you heard about uh, people's besides the children education which you've talked about but what's happening in people's lives as well were there any I mean you would have, in three months you must have seen so much and heard so many stories and I'm wondering is there anything that stands out for you over the that three month period yeah that's a that's a difficult question um a lot stands out I think uh if we're talking about oppressive structures the one in particular is probably the permit system that controls uh, every aspect of a Palestinian's life. So from the moment that they wake up in the morning, uh, they, if they want to get from A to B, so they want to get to their olive groves to um, access their, their source of livelihood, then they will have to go to through military checkpoints. And there are over 100 permanent military checkpoints that are set up in Palestine. But then there are also these flying checkpoints that pop up at random, which really mean that uh, there's no predictability in their daily lives. And whilst they're going through these checkpoints, again, they're subject to harassment and intimidation. I, I remember a photo you showed at the presentation with a, a woman holding a baby up over her head. Mm -hmm. What was going on there? Yeah, so that was a situation where uh, the checkpoint was moving really, really slowly and, and backed up. And often it can be, it can take someone, you know, 20 minutes to three hours to get through a checkpoint and this woman had been holding her baby up out of the, the crush of um, of people that were standing there in the crowd and this is at Kalandia checkpoint which is the main um, passageway between sorry my voice is very croaky um, the main passageway between I'm just wondering do you want just a little break or maybe just finish this and then yeah, we'll have sure. a break for you and play a bit of music yeah yeah sure so this was between uh, Jerusalem and Ramallah, and this woman had been holding her baby up so that it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't subject to to being crushed in the, in the crowd, and she was actually um, passing her baby across the crowd through, you know, the hands of strangers to a man who had beckoned her to to send the child to her, him, and um, and that yeah. was because her arms were getting shaky. I remember you saying yeah, she'd from been holding the baby exactly. She'd been she was getting tired of holding her up. 
Um, she'd been there for about 15 minutes and we watched this all play out and there was no way that we could get to her because it was such a packed yeah. and crammed space. Okay, so we're going to play now a, a song called uh, El Bira, which is a, um, it has a former Palestinian town, I understand, and the CD is dedicated to the great Palestinian poet, Mahmoud Darwish. It's from the, the CD is The Amazing Eyes of Rita. If you've just tuned in, we're talking with um, Monica Kylie, and uh, the music you just heard is called Albira, and I, it, it's from The Astounding Eyes of Rita, that's the name of the CD, and the whole CD is dedicated to um, Mahmoud Darwish, the great Palestinian poet who died, I think, around 2008, something like that. So, um, well, and so <laughs> now we're going to move on with uh, Monica and... Uh, ask her a bit more about her experience as a human rights observer in Palestine. And, uh, Monica, at the, the meeting or at the, the talk last week, you mentioned that the different kind of languages that were being used within uh, Israel-Palestine yeah. to describe what was happening. So do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, sure. So after yeah, 70 years of this uh, 
conflicted relationships that are happening. There's there are different languages that uh, these that Israelis and Palestinians, generally speaking, are talking. So, for example, um, the Palestinians and the international community will refer to uh, illegal Jewish-only settlements in the West Bank, and whereas to a domestic Israeli audience in the media and the government will generally refer to those same, um, what essentially, towns and, and neighbourhoods. Well, yeah, they refer to them as neighbourhoods. Rather than illegal um, settlements. Exactly. Uh, so, yeah, they're talking different, a different language. The other thing is that the concept of an occupation or the occupation is really just completely dismissed. You know, it's for, again, generally speaking, for Israelis, it's Judea and Samaria and uh, the West Bank and Gaza and the Palestinian territories are essentially just their, you know, their promised land, um, and they have a right to that land and. Um, and and yeah, for the Palestinians, it's quite different. For for the Israelis, mm-hmm. is there a... Because I know that there are Israeli left-wing groups who um, work with Palestinians yeah. and are aware of the occupied territories as being occupied. Yeah. Um, but for the everyday Israeli, did you get a sense that they were they had any understanding of these places not being in, you know, part of... or not supposed to be part of the Israeli state? Yeah, look, I think um, it's mixed, but on the whole... My sense from Israelis is, what can I say, is that they don't have they don't have a f- full understanding of it. No, they are looking at these places, and you know, for, and I should be really clear: a lot of these settlers, who are, there's a very small minority who are these really ideological um, settlers on the frontier, whereas there's you know, massive populations who move into these settlements because there's cheap housing, because they are under financial strain in Israel, and they get uh, tax subsidies, and it's an easy lifestyle and easy access to Jerusalem. Um, so there, there are governmental imperatives, uh, incentives for people to move, um, so tax incentives for yeah. people to move into the, um, the occupied territories. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. It's sold to them. And, and you mentioned different views within the Jewish community. And I do remember going to an oral history conference a number of years ago where a woman, a Jewish woman, who also monitors what's going on uh, at the checkpoints. So that's mm-hmm. the, the, the group, that they, that's what they do. And she reported at that conference. I'm wondering, did you see examples of uh, Jewish people supporting the Palestinians when you were there? Yeah, definitely. And actually, I think you might be talking about Maxim Watch. And, um, uh, possibly, yes. It was a while ago that I heard the press. Yeah. yeah, they're a fantastic group, and sort of the only other people that we saw at the checkpoints were these Israeli women who um, have just given up so much of their time and their life to go in and stand again as as a protective presence and to advocate um, tirelessly on behalf of of people Palestinians who are you know just asking for their basic rights. But Maxim Watch is definitely not the only organisation. Um, some of the many of the organisations that we were collaborating with and working with are Israelis. So for example, Bethlehem, um is fantastic, and they they actually document and report on human rights violations, and they um, are speaking to the international community, and their voice is incredibly powerful because they are Israeli. Um, 
Tayush is another organisation that we spend a lot of time doing protective presence with in Bedouin communities in particular. Um, yeah, the list goes on. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's uh, fantastic that you went, and I'm wondering now what's next for you? What next? That's a really good question. Um, I'm wondering that too. I definitely want to go on and do some more study. I'm definitely planning to stay... Um, I'd like to do some more research into uh, peace and conflict dynamics and you know, the motivations that drive people to violence um, and in the hope of finding a way to uh, mitigate those. Yeah. Yeah, what well, that will look like, I'm not entirely sure. And Monica, you've got a blog if people want to hear more about what, what you did because there's, there's lots more. Yeah, um, I so do. How, how can people get to your blog if they want to, if they're interested? The the URL for that blog is a bit messy, but I might direct you to my uh, Twitter handle, and it's the pinned tweet there. Okay. So um, my yeah my Twitter handle is at m j k e i l y. And you should find me that way. Wonderful. Okay, Monica. Well, you know, really, we appreciate you coming in. It's a great effort, especially <laughs> as you, you know, you're working on your the recovery of your voice, which is good. But uh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for coming in. We really appreciate it. Now, for the folks listening at home, we might direct you to some really um, great shows here on 3CR. CR Community Radio. Uh, first of all, Anamin Hunak, which is which translates to "I am from here," um, which features voices from the Palestinian diaspora. That is in Arabic, and that's Mondays at 10 p.m. Uh, and then in English, "Palestine Remembered," which is at 9:30 a.m. Saturdays on 3CR. Um, yeah. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. We'll be right back. Uh, hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name is Paul. Uh, this is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great, and really healthy and nutritious. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. The City of Stonington presents Carols at Como Park. Join host Shane Jacobson for an evening featuring performances by Casey Donovan and many more. Bring along a picnic and celebrate under the stars with a riverside pyrotechnic display to conclude the night. Carols at Camo Park, Sunday, December 16, from 7.30pm. See the City of Stonington website for more details. A 3CR supporter. Are you 18 years and over? Have you been stopped by a Victorian police officer or protective service officer in the last 10 years? Would you like to contribute to research that aims to inform law reform and litigation strategies to prevent over-policing? 
Go to policestopsurvey.online for more information and to take part. That's policestopsurvey.online, a 3CR supporter. All right. Well, we've been um, hearing a wonderful interview, a um, very moving interview with Monica Kiley and uh, the kinds of things people got get caught up in around conflict and it uh, was great for her to come in today to talk about her experiences. And now we're going to go to an interview that we did uh, earlier in the year. It was with um, Amanda Thomas, who is a human geographer of Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand, and she studies something called environmental democracy, which is, I think, incredibly relevant this particular week, having heard what uh, David Attenborough has said about, you know, the people are expecting you to, to act. And uh, the students, Australian students who, who demonstrate, who, who were on strike from school. So it's a good time to be thinking about environmental democracy. And um, I, she, she and her colleagues published an article about how media framings framing limits public debate and in this case was on oil exploration in New Zealand but the principles I think still apply as I'm sure you'll recognize in the interview but I started out by just asking her you know what what is environmental democracy? Environmental democracy is how we make decisions about the environment and who makes decisions about the environment access to decision-making and and the full range of politics that goes on around decision-making. So not just submissions on legislation, but the direct action that's about forcing a conversation or challenging particular power interests. There was a lot of changes under our previous government, which was a centre-right national-led government. They had a really strongly developmentalist agenda, so lots of courting of international corporations to come and explore here. We were kind of interested in what was going on to facilitate that, but also the way that communities opposed it and tried to voice their concerns and be active in resisting or contesting what was going on. So we were really interested in how these communities went about creating good discussion and debate about whether we want this here or not. Yes, and so you're talking 2011 there that this was happening. Yeah, so that was when these things particularly kicked off, and we started doing this project in 2013, concluded it last month really. So your paper in the conversation reports on six years of research in which more than 50 people are interviewed. I mean, that's a huge project to interview that many people. And you included in that climate activists, people representing NGOs and the oil and gas sector and local government, as well as your media analysis. Why did you do it? Why did we do it? That's a great question. I think all of us have a kind of theoretical interest in democracy, but we're also really interested in social justice and environmental justice. The idea that equitable uh, decisions are made about the environment and there's equitable access to the environment and to good, clean environments, for example. So uh, all of our communities getting to have a say. And what we were seeing was, no, they weren't. So at the boards of Whanau, they weren't consulted at all about whether they wanted oil and gas exploration in their territorial waters. So who's the group that wasn't consulted? Uh, te Whānau uh, Apanui, so an iwi on um, the east coast of the North Island. So they weren't, they weren't consulted about that at all. And it's particularly concerning because Māori never ceded sovereignty, so they haven't ceded sovereignty over their waters. Their sovereignty is obviously not being acknowledged or honoured if consents are being given out for exploration in the water off their land. 
So that was one of the things you were concerned about, and uh, were other groups also worried about it? So other reasons were that it captured a particularly important moment in New Zealand's history in relation to environmental struggle. A bunch of groups across a number of different cities and towns and regions popped up around that same time. And this was just people, some of whom who had no experience organising activist stuff before, but they were suddenly confronted with exploration vessels in their waters. So, for example, Kaikoura in the South Island, where they have a big whale-watching industry, and then consents were being given out for seismic testing in their waters. And so that community uh, organised as a group called No Drill Kaikoura, and, you know, a bunch of people who have never necessarily done this sort of stuff before and, and trying to have a say, really, about whether this should happen or not. It sounds like a pattern that's emerging in which governments aren't acting in the interests of the people or the future, and so citizen groups are, are rising up or coming into being to actually take up that, that slack, the work that governments aren't doing. Absolutely. Something that we would have certainly noticed and it's a really interesting time with our new Labour-led government here because Jacinda Ardern, our new Prime Minister, before the last election said climate change is this generation's nuclear-free moment. So oh, in the interesting. 80s, New Zealand had a big nuclear-free campaign. She said that this is our moment for similar kind of action. But in terms of policy and, and new kind of approaches from this government, we haven't seen anything. So the fight hasn't been won and we're still waiting for strong leadership from our government. Our research has suggested some really tangible things this new government can do. So, for example, uh, repealing legislation passed in 2013 that introduced a punishment of jail if you came within 500 metres of an exploration vessel. Yeah, we're getting some of that here too. So I think that's something that we need to be enormously worried about because it got against international conventions that protect the right to protest. I mean, at the same time, there's all sorts of new websites that are popping up that are mostly commentary and, and analysis, which is great. So it is kind of a time of a real change and interesting to see what happens. You also interviewed people from the gas and oil industry. Yeah. What were their yeah. impressions and feelings about all this? Very few people would talk to us from the oil and gas industry, which is a bit disappointing. But the people that we did talk to were really fascinating and, and we were grateful for their time. And they were saying things like, New Zealand has the highest environmental standards in the world, particularly around health and safety, for example. A lot of them were talking about a transition to clean energy, so looking more for gas rather than oil as part of an energy transition and, and acknowledging climate change. But they also pulled out that um, activists are, are driven by ideology, and really we're all driven by ideology, like neoliberal <laughs> yes. economic growth is an ideology, yes, and, and they have ideologies too. So... It was quite interesting to see that in action. And if you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Dr. Amanda Thomas. She's a lecturer in the School of Geography, Environment and Earth Sciences at Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand. And she's been telling us about environmental democracy and the way the media frames and reports on environmental activism. In our analysis of media between 2010 and 2014, we definitely saw that there was happening and it tended to be kind of dominant, dominated by particular ideas and framings of oil and gas debate. And that was the usual tropes that um, activists are hippies and extremists and they're ideological and uninformed. There was bent towards oil and gas being portrayed in that industry as necessary for economic growth and 
that we need to make some sacrifices, i.e. the environment, for economic growth. If we want to have nice things, we've got to sacrifice the environment a little bit. What happened on the day of the protest in Dunedin in 2016, in the lead-up to a particular action, a blockade of three banks, the ANZ banks in Dunedin, rationale for the blockade was being reported um, and there was discussion about it and about the issue, which was ANZ to divest from fossil fuels. And then through the course of the day, activists took a tactical decision to move to a third bank. At that bank, the police had, I would probably characterise it as quite a repressive response to the activists and encouraged members of the public to climb across them and use reasonable force in getting across the activists. The media captured video footage of a, an elderly woman getting kind of lifted across the, the activists to get into the bank, even though uh, bank staff and the activists had told her that there was a side door that was open that she could actually use if she really needed to get into the bank. So and when you the, say she was being lifted across, who was lifting her? The police. The police. She also was kind of verbally abusing the protesters and, and whacked them with her cane. And it, and it was in that moment that the reporting changed to the idea that the activists had crossed the line, they'd kind of gone too far with their democratic rights, and they were being disrespectful to the public. So this idea that inconveniencing people trying to go about their banking is somehow worse than the inconvenience of climate change that comes about when we continue to invest in fossil fuels. And one of the things you talk about in your paper was the way media coverage actually limits public debate. One of the things that we argue through our research is that when the media gives very narrow representations of activists and, and the arguments they're making, so for example, that they're extremists, that they're ideological, that they're hippies, it actually limits our ability to debate the issues at hand. So if the, if the attention is on the individual and, and their supposed kind of irrational thinking, they're totally missing the point about what the broader debates are, which are, should we be investing in fossil fuels? What are our responsibilities to distant others and people here that are affected by climate change? What does that mean for the policies that we adopt? Those sorts of things. Yeah, the media has a real role in, in accurately reporting on, on that and in contributing to the debate and discussion about what sort of direction we want to be going in terms of our environmental democracy. And I guess it also has a vital role in a democracy. Yes, absolutely, and I think that's why the kind of changing mediascape is, is really interesting and important to keep an eye on at the moment. One of the things that we were really worried about going into the research was that there is a downward pressure on our democracy. So there's negative attitudes towards protesters and direct action, and there, also there were legislative reforms that made it harder to protest. So there was definitely evidence of those things happening. But at the same time, talking to communities and seeing the work that they did and the things that they created over the course of our research was incredibly inspiring, not something that I expected to find so hopeful and the work they're doing is amazing and I see similar, similar kind of stuff happening in Australia so there's never been a better time to take action for better environmental decision making and um, it was such a pleasure to work with those groups and understand what they're doing. My 
name is Selva Coolidgeldon, and I am fighting for my life. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to have to flee your own country, spend days or weeks in a leaky boat on dangerous rolling seas, and then arrive in a new country where you are terrorised even more? Well, that's the life confronting millions of people in this world who have no choice but to seek asylum. All these people want is a fair go, but here in Australia, our government, in our name, treats these desperate people with cruelty and inhumanity. Here at 3CR, we aim to give these people a voice, a chance to speak out and let you know that they are just like us, people with hopes and aspirations, people who deserve to be treated as we would expect to be treated if we found ourselves in this position. Refugee Radio is the voice of refugees. 10am every Sunday at 3CR 855 on the AM dial. So say I'm not a worthless human being Cause no one needs a worthless human being My family need a worthwhile human being Refugee Radio is such a great show. And uh, just earlier we were speaking with Amanda Thomas, an environmental geographer from the Victoria University of Wellington, New Zealand, and she ended by saying there's never been a better time for environmental activism. Sure is the case. And now we're going to have another interview on climate change. Now, last week we looked at plastic pollution in the ocean, and I think it just speaks to the kind of holistic nature of climate change. It's affecting everything in our world. Because this week we look at its impacts on health, and we have Professor Helen Berry on the line to talk to us about her recent um, part in the Lancet publication of the Countdown on Health Climate Change. So, good morning, Helen. Good morning. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Um, So, I guess if you could just start us off, uh, there's been a few publications from the Lancet um, of the Countdown on Health and Climate Change, but why was the paper and report uh, first established? Well, the answer to that goes back um, 30 years or so, and um, it was uh, it was in the um, early 70s that the world started getting good quality climate change research. Mm-hmm. And by the 90s, we had the first 1990 actually, we had the first assessment report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, known as the IPCC, mm-hmm. and that's when global concern really started to mount. But despite all the activities since then, so little has been done across so much of the world that the Lancet, which is probably the world's most influential um, uh, health science paper, decided to get onto this topic in a big way. So they they conducted um, an international review and um, had a commission and so on, looked into it in depth. And um, and actually in um, 2009, almost a decade ago now, they actually wrote in their report that climate change is the biggest global health threat of the 21st century. And uh, and then, of course, we had the um, COP21 in Paris and the Paris Agreement and so on. Mm-hmm. And after that, the Lancet decided to start publishing annually a set of indicators that would show how the world is doing in adapting to and mitigating climate change and its effects on health. So 2018 was the second year of that report. This year it's just come out. And in collaboration with the Lancet, Australia has done its own report for just for Australia, using as far as possible the same indicators so that we can track our progress as well. And the whole point of this has been um, to, to create pressure on politicians so they really understand what this means for people. 
And looking at that, I, I suppose we were talking about this yesterday, but uh, the report really does aim to kind of not just act as a scientific paper, but a influencer to public policy or political policy. So just from that kind of perspective, what's different about this report that really makes it kind of a call out to politicians for action? Yeah, well, you're exactly right with that. So um, we do work really hard to make the science as good as we can mm-hmm. and, um, and to improve it every year. But we don't just report on health and how things are going in relation to health and climate change, but we report on a whole lot of other areas as well that impact on health. And we try to make it so that it's full of numbers. So there are indicators that say X number of people this and Y percent that, that kind of thing, Mm -hmm. so that politicians really can understand it very easily and quickly. And I suppose with that, um, I I found it really interesting how you have the five categories. So I'm just going to read them out just to... Uh, kind of bookmark them for the audience, but there's climate. The first one is climate change impacts, exposures, and vulnerability. Second one is then adaption, planning, and resilience kind of thing. Uh, Third's mitigation, uh, actions, and health co benefits. And the fourth uh, is economics and finance. And finally, the fa- uh, the fifth is pl- public and political engagement. So with these five categories, um, why why do we have these five categories? Are they so intertwined, or does it provide like a greater view of the issue of climate change? They are, and it reflects the fact that um, the whole relationship between climate change and health is very complex, Mm -hmm. and that's because climates are very complex and they change over time, and they create weather, and weather is very complex and variable, and it changes over very short periods of time, as we know, Mm -hmm. and health is very complex as well, um, particularly mental health. So the pathways that connect climate change to health and especially mental health are extremely complicated and they cover a whole range of areas so that's why we've got the five different categories of indicators in the report so that we can say well look at this this type of pathway for example um a financial pathway if i just give you one example the sydney floods that we had um last week Mm -hmm. The um, insurance companies have estimated at the moment that that's going to cost $10 million just for people's private homes to be repaired. So if you imagine that multiplied many times, I mean, imagine Mm. what the costs are going to be of recovery after the Queensland firestorm. And I I guess, sorry to interrupt you, but that's bringing in so many different angles that really there are... That everyone's a stakeholder, I think, in this report, because as you said, it brings in finance, it brings in political engagement, it brings in the public. Like, it, it's readable and made um, current to every single person who reads it. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Ivan. That's mm. exactly what it's intended to do. So anybody can pick up that report or a summary of it and say, oh my God. So, I mean, if I just give you a couple of examples from our Australia report, because that's mm-hmm. kind of closest to home. Yeah, and by the way, Australia is the only country in the world that has done this. And um, so it's very exciting to be sort of first out of the blocks with that. And other countries are following our lead, um, hoping to do that next year. Mm-hmm. But um, for example, um, since 2000, so in less than 20 years, mm-hmm. heat waves in Australia are on average two days longer than they used to be. Yeah. And there's a 6% increase in workers' compensation claims during heat waves. Mm-hmm. So we've got two days longer heat waves for every heat wave every year now, costing 6% extra workers' comp during those extra days, for example. So, And then to add to that, annual productivity loss from heat stress, which is 
different from compensation claims, but just productivity losses are about $6 billion a year. And so I'm... just to give you an idea, you know, that these are huge numbers and somebody has to pay for this, us. Yeah, and I'm so glad you brought in up. In first, and then in our lives. Yeah, <laughs> I'm so glad you brought up heat waves because, of course, that's that was my first question with climate change. Um, the first the first area, and the fact that they have become on two days average longer. Um, the report was suggesting that by 2070, 15 to 26 days would be too dangerous to work in for some of these manual labourers. So, with that yeah. that that look of the rise of heat waves and the rise of um extreme thing, we'll just jump into some of the report findings. Um, just for this section, just a little clear warning for anyone listening we will be talking about mental health and touching on some very sensitive issues such as suicide and self-harm so if you want to tune out please tune out for five minutes and come back but in the case of heat waves the report was very much warning well extreme weather patterns like heat waves will lead to higher rates of for example suicide mental harm sorry self-harm and um, that sort of area could you give us a little bit of talk because that's really your area the mental health aspect Mm. yeah well, in our previous research, not in this report, we mm-hmm. found a link um, at the whole population level between hot days and population-level mental distress. Mm-hmm. So when the, when, the, when the mercury rises, then it's very, very common for people to get distressed. Now, that's a long way from um, harming themselves or even attempting to end their lives. Yeah. Population distress, when you're looking at a whole population, is a whole lot of mental health issues. Mm -hmm. boiling to the surface and that's for people in general not people who already have particular mental health issues or vulnerabilities for those people the risk is much higher so they're much more likely to develop distress and for that distress to be very severe so for the reports what we looked at was the relationship between hot years and suicide rates in um, Australian states and territories and we looked at hot years rather than heat waves or hot days because global warming is all about the average annual temperature going up. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to see if there was a general effect over the year of these, um, of these slow rises. And we found there absolutely was. There was a very strong relationship. The hotter the year, the higher the suicide rate. And uh, an unusually strong relationship, which you don't, don't always find in um, health research. Mm. And... Um, and sorry to, to sorry. just no 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 I'm interrupting, um, but to to jump on to kind of Australia's uh, review of how easily they can adapt to this, we Australia was actually found relatively poor to adapt because with a local state federal kind of conglomerate we've we've not really got a national way of addressing this. No, and that comes to another part of the report that you mm. mentioned, which is the one about the um, political engagement um, and policy. Mm-hmm. And um, what we found overall is that um, Australia is lagging behind the rest of the wealthy world by a very long way and, and getting worse as we go on. And, um, and the Australian federal government, as we know, has no climate change policy. Mm-hmm. It also has no health policy in relation to climate change. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's replicated across most of the states and territories. Um, standouts are... Um, Particularly the ACT is doing really well in looking into these issues. So it has a climate change policy and that policy includes um, uh, material on health and vice versa. It has a health policy that includes material on climate change and and so on. And it's making a huge effort around renewables and um, electric buses and um, a public tram system and so on. Mm. And uh, Victoria is doing quite well in some areas and Queensland has a great climate change and health policy. But other than that, it's there's not much happening. Yeah, and we were discussing uh, 
that it was kind of almost a game of political tennis with this idea of changing economic policy. And I think the the point you've brought up was with the fact that we lack a definition and then thus a direction of how we want to address this cl- kind of climate yeah. change and its impact on health. Yeah. That's something that um, is quite hard to understand, I guess, when you come to this fresh, but mm-hmm. defining some of these weather-related disasters is actually very hard. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very difficult to define a drought. We all have an intuitive sense of what that is, but if you try to be precise about it scientifically, what actually is it and what is it in relation to human health? And the same uh, similar questions arise around heat waves. So what exactly is a heat wave? Mm. So um, when you don't have a, a general, agreed, understood, sensible definition of these um, climate, these weather events, then it's very difficult to develop policy around them because you don't know what the thing is that has to trigger your policy and what your policy is actually supposed to be addressing. So one of the things that we do need in Australia is some common and sensible definitions of these issues. Yeah, some common ground. And I suppose just with that idea of kind of like, you know, uh, information about climate change, I'm just going to kind of bring our attention to the fifth um, fifth category, which is the public and po- political kind of, you know, attention. And this idea that our media coverage has substantially and quite dramatically dropped about climate change, which means that we're leaving a really uninformed public. Exactly so, except that 3CR is <laughs> on the ball. But, uh, yeah, absolutely. Appreciate and, um, the but partly, yeah, <laughs> um, but Great radio station. But it's particularly the Canberra Times, actually, and um, mm-hmm. the Canberra Times was very engaged in it because it reports, of course, on the um, political scene in um, on the Hill as well as the Canberra community generally. Yeah. So when there was a lot of debate around climate change on the Hill, then it was reflecting that, but that debate was essentially shut down in... 2014, and so was any funding for research in this area. And I think there was hardly any ever, and now there's none at all. Yeah, and the the I think the massive uh, statistics to take out of that was the 50% decrease of media stories in the past 10 years talking about climate change, yeah. and just that yeah. removal. Yeah, that removal from. Yeah, it's gone from the public debate largely, and mm-hmm. uh, and that's in stark contrast to the global figure. And the global mm-hmm. figure, so for the Lancet Global report on climate change and um, health. Then um, for, uh, for an indicator to make it into that report, there has to be reliable data from at least 80 to 90 countries around the world. So it's a very high benchmark, and it includes way more than just the wealthy countries. And so even including all the countries that you might think might not have much media reporting on climate change, mm-hmm. that figure, that, that reporting on climate change, is, is growing steadily and reasonably fast at a global level while at the same time in Australia it's dropping off at the same rate. And the same for research funding. So yeah. we, um, we haven't had any research funding at all for climate change and health issues um, for getting on for five years, and there was almost none before that, very little. Yes, well, well thank you so much for coming on, Helen Berry. Um, the last thing I'd like to get you to very quickly summarise, because we're desperately running out of time, is... Um, what do we need to take out the most? What do we really need to take out of this Lancet uh, journal that this year's publication? I think that we need urgent action on climate change, and it's a matter of life or death. Thank you for wrapping that up so concisely. Uh, thank you very much, Helen. We'll talk to you soon, hopefully again. It's fantastic talking to you today. You're very welcome. Thank you, Ivan.
now we welcome to the studio Dr. Timothy Jones, who is here for his monthly segment, keeping us up to date on what's been happening around a whole range of issues. But I imagine you've been looking closely at the parliamentary debate that's been going on about uh, removing religious exemptions. That's right. From um, discrimination legislation. Good morning, yeah. everyone. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure how much it's been covered in the media, but I've been paying close attention to it. <laughs> well, can you just explain it a bit? Yeah. So people have missed it. Yeah. So uh, earlier in the... After, after marriage equality was passed, uh, the government announced the Ruddock Review into Religious Freedom... Um, to try and sort out apparent conflicts between um, freedom of religion and protection of discrimination. Um, that report was suppressed, but its uh, recommendations were leaked uh, recently, and that provoked a lot of public concern about protecting LGBT kids in schools. Um, less concern, but still concern about protecting LGBT teachers in religious schools. And lots of religious communities were afraid that if uh, those, their, if their exemptions from discrimination uh, uh, legislation were removed, they wouldn't be able to teach their faith, their beliefs anymore. So it's yeah, clearly so, so quite a conflict. So currently they're exempt from discrimination. They yeah. can discriminate. Yes, so at the moment uh, Australian yeah. law allows uh, religious organisations to discriminate on the basis of sex, uh, which means that um, LGBT teachers and students can be excluded from schools uh, if schools want to do so. So that's the that's the sort of nub that our politicians are trying to sort out. Um, Morrison, the Prime Minister, was kind of pushed into saying that LGBT kids should be protected, but actually legislating that is proving quite difficult. All right, so there's a bit of a contradiction going on here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of confusion around this area, and I think there's actually a couple of interesting um, lessons from our history that could help us understand this problem better. Um, Last month, I questioned how central sex is to religion. Yes. Um, uh, no, uh, there, there aren't any orthodox or consistent views on sex within any faith. Uh, it's not a core part of any faith's doctrines. Um, and I challenge us to critically engage with different communities, respectfully, um, to develop understandings of what uh, the place of sexuality and gender is in religion and to provoke religious communities to have that reflective thought as well. Um, because uh, in many instances, I think sex and gender attitudes towards sex and gender aren't really are more part of a religious tradition um, than actually religious belief. So different communities have different cultures and traditions, and it's useful to be able to separate that out from uh, the core beliefs that they have. And I think as religions move from one country to another, from one culture to another, they take on some of the characteristics of that culture. Yeah, and it's quite interesting if we look in a different context. We seem very, very afraid of critically engaging with Christianity's traditions around sexuality and gender, but in Australia we're not at all afraid of critiquing other faiths' traditions around sexuality and gender. So we've got a very strong uh, recent tradition of being confident to critique uh, Islamic communities' attitudes towards sex and gender. People are not afraid to separate out uh, Islamic culture and Islamic belief. Uh, Muslims themselves have become quite practiced at separating out culture uh, and faith. Yesterday, actually, I saw a presentation by Ali Fahur, who's one of the founders of the Islamic Museum here in Thornbury. Uh, and the whole purpose of that museum is to separate out what are the core beliefs of Islam and then what are the traditions around politics, gender, sexuality that 
uh, emerge in different cultures and communities. And you know, I know from my experience in university, a lot of the Muslim women are actually doing research, analyzing that very thing when they come to do... Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's, am- it's mm. amazing. Um, and Islam is actually a much better... Um, religious tradition at doing this. Yes. Uh, it's got a sort of uh, jurisprudential legal structure uh, which evolves in the face of new circumstances, in the face of new cultures, new communities. Um, so it's, it's got a built-in structures which enable it to critically engage with culture and tradition uh, in a way that Christianity hasn't had to so much. But... And this is where my uh, history lesson comes in. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why you're here. Yes, <laughs> yes. For the history. Bring, I, I, bring, I didn't say you were a historian at the beginning. I should always remind us. Bring in the history nerd to throw a little bomb from the past into a contemporary situation. Um, Australia actually has a really rich tradition uh, of negotiating religious conflict and religious difference. Um, but it's not in the... Not in the uh, it's a little bit different to the current situation that we're in. Um, so Australia developed a whole complex uh, architecture of law and social practices to deal with religious conflict. But the religious conflict that it evolved around was sectarian conflict between Catholics and Protestants. Oh, um, yes. Older Australians uh, you know, might remember a time um, when there was incredibly violent conflict between Catholics and Protestants based on suspicion, based on a tradition that goes back 500 years to the Reformation of hostility between two uh, traditions of Christianity. Um, and it's actually uh, the, the current system of religious exemptions and the, plate, then the, the laws governing the expression of religion in Australian society evolved to deal with that particular conflict. But a system of uh, exemptions and regulations designed to deal with sectarian conflict between Protestants and Catholics isn't very well suited to deal with the current conflict over moral and moral values and cultural traditions that we're dealing at the moment. So it makes sense that we would have to revise our laws to suit a new uh, challenge, a new moral and religious challenge. I I always find the word moral a bit challenging myself, because there's always that whose morality, you know, and uh, so it, 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 it's, it invokes righteousness in some ways, but some of the moral positions are not necessarily right, righteous or fair, should I say fair or just. Yeah, exactly, and I think that's what's really emerged, like in the marriage equality campaign, um, churches assumed that they had a moral majority in, support, in supporting the moral traditions of heterosexual patriarchy. Um, But actually, the postal survey showed that the majority of Australians affirm the morality, the human dignity of LGBT people's relationships, which sit outside the traditions of heterosexual patriarchy. So there's been uh, a public demonstration of majority support for different uh, moral values around sex, sexuality and gender. Um, But one of the things that I wanted to um, think about is why... Uh, people of faith are so afraid of difference at this point in time. Um, if you believe in a religious tradition, surely you would be confident that it would stand up to critique, it would stand up to contrast with different moral views. Are the church's teachings so fragile that they can't withstand the scrutiny and challenge of a diverse and engaged student body? Yes. Don't, <laughs> don't teachers already deliver content critically and respect, respectfully that they don't entirely believe or agree with? 
Surely diversity in education can help everybody understand themselves and other people's traditions uh, and learn more deeply about morality in contemporary Australia. Yeah, I mean, uh, of course, <laughs> of course, and uh, yeah, and to explore the issues and for students to engage with that conversation. But why do you think, um, you know, people are so reluctant to engage with that? I think it comes out of a deep lack of respect for the agency and capacity of children to engage with difference. People are terrified. Uh, going back to, like, prejudice ideas from background in the 1950s that children are innocent, uh, and that they'll be corrupted, they'll be ruined. There's no sense of a child's agency in engaging with ideas that a child has the capacity to look, to ha- has a moral sensibility that they can evaluate for themselves, uh, moral traditions, uh, beliefs. And of course they can. Yeah, exactly. Of course they can. I mean, very young children, even in early childhood centres, can talk about fairness and from what goes on actually right in the playground. And, uh, and certainly I think some people have uh, taught ethics in primary school as well. And, uh, you know, young people, children come up with amazing insights. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Uh, And I think um, the idea that uh, children, religious children, need to be raised in hermetically sealed incubators where they're only exposed to one view, um, that idea of education isn't very robust. It shows a deep anxiety about the, the kinds of beliefs and morality that you want to instill in a child that if they're exposed to a different morality, uh, they won't choose the one that you want them to. (laughs) So what trends are you seeing? I mean, are you you seeing, do you think, are you hopeful that there will be some change around these issues, that people will begin to recognise children's capacity to discuss and investigate? Well, I haven't seen any sign of that in the current debates in federal parliament. I've been quite disappointed, actually, uh, Mm -hmm. at the lack of capacity that um, politicians have had to articulate uh, any kind of uh, respect for difference or diversity or the value of diversity in education. Um, they've really been just playing the game or following the playbook uh, of the Christian traditions that are feeling afraid and under attack. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess just going back to where we started at the very beginning about the parliamentary debate, you know, it, it, on Monday and the fact that I think it was delayed, wasn't it, that we're removing the religious exemptions? From yep. it was so they're going to vote this morning. Um, vote. Oh, my God, as yep. we speak almost. Well, well, not as quite, we speak, but, but crossbench senators are making up their mind at the moment. Oh uh, they have, they've been thinking about these things, hopefully overnight, and thinking hard, and hopefully they're listening to 3CR this morning to yes. get some enlightenment on this issue. Uh, but we'll see today what's, what's going to happen mm-hmm. with the current legislation. But it's unbelievable in light of the vote last year that we're still you know, dealing with these kinds of things. And it just seems like the message still hasn't gotten through. Well, moral, moral and cultural change is slow and it's difficult um, and it's easy to get afraid about. But I think if we can encourage people to be a bit more confident in the value of their beliefs and the robustness of their beliefs in the face of difference uh, and to respectfully engage with each other's beliefs, I think that's a good way forward. Thanks, Tim. And that sounds like a great wrap for this morning's conversation with you. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. We've, we've been speaking to Dr. Tim Jones of La Trobe, and uh, that's a part of our week, a monthly segment. Um, will, yes. will we be seeing you in January next year? Maybe. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we'll keep an ear out. Uh, and then earlier we heard from 
uh, Amanda. Oh, sorry, no, no, no. Before we heard f- from, after we heard from Amanda Thomas, rather, we heard from Professor Helen Ber- Berry, who was talking to us about the uh, the connections between all sorts of different things, including mental health and uh, and climate change. Earlier in the show, Amanda Thomas. Yes, uh, from New Zealand, who was talking about media representations of environmental activists. Mm-hmm. Still an issue, and from what Eidman was looking at, and Professor Barry as well. And then we um, had uh, in the studio Monica Kylie and talking about her experience as a human rights observer in Palestine. Yeah, that's right. And then at the top of the show, we had our alternative news segment where we also heard a little bit from. Um, from um, yeah, Sir David Attenborough, Sir David. His, and, and interestingly, his comments mirrored Professor Barry's comments that mm. there's we have no time to waste. No the time. matter is urgent. Yeah. And in fact, we have no time. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, tomorrow, Thursday breakfast is going to be a great show, so definitely tune in from 7 a.m. Um, I can't tell you what they've got planned. Not that no, it's a it's secret, right. but they've, they've got yeah. lots of great things. It's We're going to be listening good. to. Stick together right Stick now. Stick together. So you folks have a great Wednesday and uh, catch you again tomorrow. Yeah. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03-9419-8377. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.